Hello, I'm Fayola Douglas and welcome to season two of the AdRace podcast where you'll find open discussion on ads, marketing, diversity and inclusion. Today I'm joined by Bacola Gary, Head of Cultural Impact at Embassy Saatchi Sport and Entertainment London. Bacola's passion for diversity, equity and inclusion reaches well beyond her role at Embassy and Saatchi Sport and Entertainment. She's been on the advisory board for Black-owned SMEs and she's also a mentor for Apprentice Nation and the NAB's Fast Forward programme. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, So let's start at the beginning, I guess. So about your journey getting into Adland. Um, How were things for you in school and what made you want to pursue higher education? Because I know you went on to university. Yes. Um, So partly, so I'm Nigerian (laughs) in terms of background. So if that tells you anything, education, education, education was very much kind of ingrained. Um, And I think from my parents' perspective, it was very much for the time that they were in, it was about being able to kind of hold your own against your white peers. It was very much a clear-going thing about my dad saying, you need to be able to hold your own and stand with your head up high in whatever space you occupy. And part of that meant matching like for like with experience. That was kind of the perspective that he kind of shared. So going to university was very much, was not an option. It was a, you're going. Um, but but at the same time, because of the education I'd received, I was I, I kind of wanted to go. It wasn't. It didn't feel like a not natural thing to do. But I guess where the spin comes in is that so my parents are doctors and it was very much the traditional route they expected me to go down. I would I'd studied science and done all those kind of routes and then I sprung on them that I wanted to study marketing and get into the more creative space. Which, um, as you can imagine, in that kind of environment was very challenging to kind of convince. But at that point, I kind of rebelled as much as rebels go. And I and I opted in for a course in marketing, advertising and PR because I'd always known I wanted to do something creative. I was that weird kid that would watch ads and kind of be really interested in the stories that we're telling. Everything from the red card to a blue card erase, the Milky Way ad that still sticks in my mind. And I just was really interested in how that comes together. So my curiosity led me to that course. And yeah, so I was there studying marketing as and PR and um, and then Mad Men came onto TV and that had a huge impact on me by way of minus the isms and the problematic nature of it. But I was just completely drawn into what felt like an environment that was just such an opportunity to storytell and celebrate creativity. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. I think I hear all the time that kids don't really understand what the advertising industry is, but you obviously had a grasp on it from very early on do you think that it helped you the fact that you chosen to study it specifically rather than just kind of fell into this area or discovered it later on in life I definitely think so by way I think of the confidence I've had and maintained of the craft of the work I think that as my career has changed over the last 15 years I think some of the focus has gotten so far away from the craft of what we do and including myself and some of the experiences I've had but I think being rooted in the craft of wanting to work in advertising wanting and knowing the the theory behind the practice and really learning kind of the importance of of the of the of the, like I said, the craft of what we do and how we do it was really key to that and I was I was really fortunate because because I'd, I almost like because I'd been intentional about wanting to work in a creative space I sought out people that were around me and there weren't many not many at all in fact one one woman who to this day I still count her as a really special person in my life who she'd worked in advertising and funny enough at the time I didn't realize at the time she was a, she she'd started as a PA so she wasn't actually in the advertising she is now but um and I'd, I'd spoken to her about wanting to do something creative and luckily again I had some really interesting conversations with my media studies teacher at college and 
just through me being curious and asking the questions, I was able to navigate my way towards what the creative industry. But funnily enough, my first role was as a media planner. So I was actually in the media side of the business, not knowing it wasn't a creative advertising agency. So there was still an element of, I don't know what I'm doing, how I've landed here. And I still remember on the grad scheme, they were like, so why do you want to work in media? And I was like, um, I don't know exactly. And I said, but I can tell you what I do know. So I managed to flip that conversation into, while I didn't know specifics of media planning, I knew what I did want to do, and it, and it kind of and it was really lucky that it was, it was synergistic. So, yeah. So I think there's been a huge role in me being intentional about being informed that play that has really held me throughout, um, and I guess places me slightly different to a lot of people that kind of stumble into this industry. So thinking of your time at university as like a, re- a really good starting point, yeah. would you still recommend that route to people now, or do you, do you think it's still like a good? way to to get to gain an understanding I guess of what marketing is all about so I again I was really specific about the course that I chose so and um, this is not a this is not a bragging rights moment at all but my grade suggested Cambridge Oxford a very traditional um, um, universities but I was I really wanted to work in a course that gave me a sandwich year because I thought work I wanted to gain experience I wanted to work I wanted to see what it felt like and so I really sought out a course that um, was vocational focused and 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 I was lucky to find a course at Birmingham that all of the lecturers were in industry they so they were like visiting guest lecturers that were that had either worked to agencies owned agencies and so I was taught from people fully in in the business and that for me spoke volumes by way of um, what the, again the added value I get I got the understanding I got of the industry the access to like even the the work we were doing was so tiered towards real life briefs so when I first started working it didn't feel like a huge step step um, step change but um, now the quality of that course and the way the courses are curated I'm not sure if they're in the same vein but I think that and I don't think it's necessary to go to university actually I think there's a lot more initiatives and routes into the industry than when I started 15 years ago there wasn't um, so like I said the option of not going to university wasn't really there and and also at the time the agencies ran grad schemes so the only way to get in was to be a graduate so things have shifted and it, and the doors have been opened but which is why I say it's not a mandatory but I do I would I can't ever pl- like downplay the importance of that time working and learning from people in the industry and how that served me and still serves me I guess today. So with the transition from university to working life, was that do you think that was made easier by doing your, your sandwich year and kind of having that definitely. experience in a workplace? Oh definitely. I um it was a it was it, don't get me wrong, it was still a culture shock because the sandwich year, the placement I did was in a more corporate marketing team. So the sandwich year I did, I worked for a more corporate company um in their marketing. So it was a little bit more, yeah, corporate, a little bit more um formal compared to an, an agency. But um again that year just helped me understand, I guess, the mechanics of how a lot of the theory that I'd learned, how it kind of plays out. But also the business side of things, I think. There was a first time I was present where you could see the influence that clients had on the way that the work was done. Excuse me, how clients in had impact on the fact that the marketing budget was very much dependent on client and at that any one time. And then I, I just, again, by osmosis, could see that the impact that would have and, and the need for us to kind of really ramp up when it comes to our ideas and, and how we needed to build the kind of right relationships with the right clients. And, and so a lot of that stuff that I think isn't, you're never going to learn it on a course but like I said by osmosis that I learned on that on that um, sandwich it really served me for when I started my grad scheme at Zenith so at Zenith you then you were there for like was it 
three, three, three and a half years. years. That's quite. That's quite a long time for like a like first. Oh, right, exactly. Yeah, for a first role. Um, so how did you find that experience? Obviously, you've you've changed um, the field you're working in quite a lot from them. But how did you find that at that point? Kind of was that ideal for you? Uh, was that a good role to go into from university? So. Um, I absolutely loved it. I think the first, the first year, should I say, it felt like a bit like the, uh, another year at uni. It felt a bit fresher. And this is where, again, we're going back years now. But in you know the year I started in the industry and, and in the media side of the business, it was very work hard, play hard. And so there was a huge incentive for a young um, kind of single. Oh, she, sorry, I wasn't single. I did have a, a partner, but I mean like not married. Not married. Not married. <laughs> sorry, husband, love you. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but someone who didn't have the responsibility. I didn't live at home. I, I had I was renting with friends. But so just that life stage and that job just was just like to the point where all my, my friends who were speech language therapists they're just like, what do you work in that? <laughs> like you're coming home all out after hours. You're getting VIP access to tickets and and you had media owners that would take you out for lunches. And it just felt a little bit too good to be true. And I think I got swept up in that. I think actually quite a bit the first year and was just like this is the best thing ever. But I think. Uh, you know the dust settles and kind of after a while there's only so many lunches where before you start to go oh noticing some problematic moments or language or experiences that I'm like oh and I realized I hadn't wasn't prepared to how to navigate it because you kind of you know there's a there was a the way I was taught is that you just kind of you just say yes you just you just you work hard and we didn't have a, an atmosphere and a culture where there was this flexibility of working we didn't have a culture where you kind of was encouraged to maybe challenge back it was very much you do what you're told and you're lucky to be here and I think that therefore dictated the next few years by way I was very silenced silencing or sorry silenced around any challenging moments problematic behaviors and again this is all before me too this is before so much those movements before Black Lives Matter all these really key moments in history that have pivoted and pushed and progressed the conversation and, and the action forward I'm coming in before all of that existed. And so, you know, there was no heads of DNI. You know, you had your HR team and they were very much business partners. It was very much they were there to represent for the business. Um, and so there was kind of the avenues of how to navigate weren't there. And so I kind of, again, fumbled my way through. And was it at the end of, I guess, leaving Zenith that you kind of moved out of the industry for, for a little while? So what I guess what what happened, I had a bit of a... So I was really, really fortunate to have an incredible manager, um, and my first ever manager at um, Zenith, um, a guy named Paul Hamilton. He, to this day, we still have a relationship now, 15 years on, and, you know, one of the most... He made one of the biggest impressions on me because he challenged me, he pushed me, but from the craft, he was just like, you know, it's all good having the fun, but be brilliant. Be brilliant so that no one can question you. Be brilliant. Always be brilliant. So, you know, he really, really pushed me. And so I think that that having that, having him played a huge role in me feeling stable. And then he left. And then I felt really unstable. I felt really like I didn't have an anchor. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't have an advocate. And I didn't know how to navigate. And I think now I look back on it with a little bit of regret. Um, but, you know, you turn that into opportunity. But I think that what I did was instead of... I didn't know how to go forward. I didn't know how to change my situation to make it better for myself. I had... I had, sadly was experiencing a lot of microaggression, a lot of, like, we're promoting everybody else except you, even though you're the best person on the team. Yeah. Like, like they want to keep you in this place because you're stabilising that team, but 
everyone else is kind of moving ahead around you. Right. And I, and that was when the, I started to get the, the feedback of, you're brilliant, you're the best at what you do, but not sure if you're like quite got the right culture fit, I'm not sure if you quite, you know, understand how to banter with the clients. I'm like, and this is at a point where, because I hadn't, I didn't swear and choose to be really like effing blind. And also I started to put, at the time, I, would, I wouldn't have called them boundaries then, but I started to put boundaries in by way of, I can't come to after work drinks all the time. And I had other things going on in my life and work wasn't all of, your whole life right and that was the first time I really saw the difference by way of feeling like the way to thrive and survive in this industry and to succeed and to grow was to be all in to be to give a hundred percent of yourself but that wasn't realistic because I'm wasn't just about work I had so many other things going on and so I think that and then then losing Paul who who really understood that about me and gave me space to develop it and in terms of both in the craft but also understood that um, life happening at me at the same time without him I just didn't know how to navigate and so um, I, I I left. I left, um, and I say that with regret because I don't. It's not that like I wanted to leave, but I left because I didn't know where else to turn. I didn't have a mentor. There weren't mentoring programs. There were there wasn't this kind of system of safety and an ecosystem of safety that there is. Not perfect, but there is now. And so I'd taken a detour into the social service, social um, sector. Um, not a complete one hundred percent change because I still was focusing on marketing and advertising for a youth charity. But a lot of the work I did was around employability and how I could inform young people who had come from a similar background to me to how they could navigate themselves into creative industries because it wasn't, it's like I said, if you don't know about it, you wouldn't know. And I thought, people like me won't stay. We won't survive in this place if we don't have people on the inside willing to kind of help us and navigate because the rules are different. There's a, there's a culture there, there's, there's a language there that sadly is built around whiteness, it is. And, you know, without anyone to navigate and tell you the secrets... How do you how do you progress? So that's kind of how I got into the social sector. So after that small break out of Adland, where I guess you were still, you were honing your craft. You were talking to a lot of young people, and you were definitely learning a lot about diversity and in, and equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, you started working at Havas. But kind of how was your route back into Adland? Kind of why did you make that decision to to move back in? So um, Havas were one of the agencies that I partnered with while in, in my role um, in the in the youth charity, and they were just really receptive to like to wanting to for one access to talent and access to young people that they could really kind of bring into their internship programs and their kind of immersion programs. But also, I think that you know I was really intentional about sp- finding the right people to speak to about how are you going to kind of maintain these relationships long term because so much of the so much people talk about oh the intention is to do this and I'm like well you have to think it through what's the long term because an initiative is fine but the initiative should have an ongoing impact and so I decided to challenge them challenge them about what their thinking was about you know you've partnered with us for this one program but what comes next and I just think that at the time this is 2018 now um that conversation wasn't happening it wasn't as present in, in Adelaide particularly and so you know they were just like look we'd love to bring you in-house actually and help inform the way we're thinking about um and again there's th- th- probably the first time I'd heard the term diversity and inclusion in that way because for me it was just the work it was the way I work all the time it didn't feel like a pivot into DNI. it just felt like I'd always worked with intention around how do you think about the people that you're working with how do you bring them into the process and how do you make sure that they their voices are heard and they're informing the work because that's how you get great work and I I understood it as a concept by way because of what I'd learned about advertising and, and the craft of marketing, and that's those were the rules I'd learned in uni. So for me, it felt like a weird 
phase that, that people had kind of identified it under this guise of DNI in terms of how we do it. But again, over time, I really understood the value that DNI and the role DNI had. But essentially, when I got into Havas, it was through that route in working in partnership with them. And they were like, look, we'd love to bring you in house. And we kind of we went back and forth, and they kind of presented the role of DNI manager that they'd come up with the title to say that felt like the right move and um, they loved the fact that I had the background of the social sector and understood the nuances of, of the different communities and how to access different types of people but also understood the industry and the needs and, and, and what, what is what is required of, of, of working in it so that kind of came together so I was the first ever um, DNI manager um, and that won't be the first time you hear me say first ever but I was the first ever DNI manager I have asked it was a huge massive responsibility that I probably didn't know what I was getting myself into have is a huge beast of an agency it's like there was like over 3,000 people in the room yet. There's like lots of different agencies, I think up to 24 at the point I was there. But, um, you know, I was it was my first time kind of being adjacent to and feeding into like management team. So I kind of propelled forward pretty, pretty quickly in that way and, um, and yeah, learnt loads, like hugely grateful for the opportunity. Again, learnt by osmosis of being with leadership and understanding the priorities of the business and what was important. But also really interesting to be able to have space and a voice and a platform to drive change and... We, we, I think in the in the two years I was there, we achieved a hell of a lot. I think we did a hell of a lot by way of actual tangible change. Um, you know, everything from the first ever DNI strategy that got rolled out globally, from the training that we were able to do and take people on a journey of understanding and learning. And again, in 2018, terms like microaggressions was was very unknown. Intersectionality was not. Um, common language like gaslighting so languages are hugely evolved to be able to accommodate that conversation but at the time we were having it we were talking about it as navigating uncomfortable conversations we were talking about it where DNI and CSR were blurred and it wasn't quite clear about the difference and the role that it had so um, but being able to kind of really carve a lane for the work and then begin to really think about how it in- informs the output of the work for our storytelling which is a really incredible experience and then and then 2020 happened and the world stopped. Obviously, the pandemic also happened, and there were so many other things happening. Me Too was happening, and it just... Climate change, there were so many really heavy, massive conversations, but I'll lean into Black Lives Matter the most because that, for me, was a, a moment in time where all of a sudden I had the spotlight. I had all of the expectation in terms of, like, so how are we going to navigate this? I was part of charging them to go, this is an issue, and it's relevant for us yeah. in the UK. So I know a lot of the early conversations with BLM was, but it's an US thing. Why are we even... Well, I guess, in a way, Havas were ahead of the curve when you look at a lot of other advertising agencies. I know, obviously, at that time I was working at Campaign Mm -hmm. and Havas were one of the agencies that did have something to say and were putting putting stuff out there that other agencies were then able to kind of follow along with and agree with or and kind of get on board so I can just imagine that how much more difficult that would have been for you because it wasn't just those thousands of people that work for Havas that were kind of looking towards you it was actually a lot of people from industry yeah and it was so and like I said and I and I really pride myself and and there's I'd never I'm not going to sit here and say it was all me but I pride myself on really on being the one that pushed it and said no this is this matters this is important you know there was a lot of should we should and I was like no we should and I think so being the being the person that led them through that process, both internally and externally through comms, helping them support the narratives and the writing, uh, setting up really kind of instant 
initiatives to kind of deal with the the the, the very present reality that a lot of people had, and and even in educating them on the things that you know black people and the black community we we grieve together, we grieve as community. It's just part of who we are, and understanding that for therefore the death of a man, all those thousand miles away, can have such a visceral impact on us as we as we navigate our spaces and I think all of a sudden Black Lives Matter gave us permission like it had never been before to speak our truth but also to assess our own experiences with blackness and what that means for us in the UK context and 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 finding community in space we'd never found it before and all of that was happening while also being tasked with answering the questions of the curious asking the questions of people who were not from the black community navigating the you know that we weren't a monolith and we had very different you know there was so much to it and I but I, I really I'm just so proud of what we were able to achieve but also I think that what that had done was really catapult me in this DNI space and catapult um you know my experience and and my I guess my fire to really drive change and be like this isn't what this is not option work this is not opt-in work and started to build a lot of kind of policies around opting out isn't an option. If you have the ability to even opt out, this is your, that's your privilege, you need to show that up. And all of a sudden, training on really specific conversations on what privilege means. And, you know, and that's really difficult when the majority of the time I'd be the only black woman in a room speaking to a room full of white people and having to speak my truth and share both my lived and learned experience. That's really challenging because there was no sa- there's no safety. There was no, at the time, we weren't safeguarding, I think, a lot of the DNI people and the roles that existed. They weren't being safeguarded with his access to therapy or his access to some safe spaces so to decompress. That It was always on. And so, but like I said, taught me a lot. And then, and it was also amplified me profile wise I think in the industry and that's how Adam and Eve kind of came knocking um so after my two and a bit years at Havas I'd naturally come to the space where I didn't see where we could I could grow and I think that they were going through change as well so I think I, it was just a timing and, and like I said I speak nothing but highly of the leadership team at the time who really supported me on that journey um you know there's huge advocates in that business Tam Green who to this day is still one of my key mentors um Ewan McPherson who's their global head of people they were just huge advocates for the work and so big up but um but yeah Adam and Eve um came knocking and for me it was a Hot tactical decision as well, if I'm honest with you, because the growth opportunity all of a sudden was a was a real conversation around um, my own progression, and they they were looking for their first ever head of DE and I, and um, I filled that role. And after quite a vigorous um, back and forth in terms of the opportunity and really challenging them on what they're trying to do, um, at the time it was um, Matt Goff was still in post, and he was the one who'd interviewed me um, along with um, Fiona again, all people that have left now, but at the time. They were the leaders in charge. And so, yeah, that just felt like a natural growth progression for me in this work. And how do you think Adam and Eve, I guess, how do they compare to have us in terms of in terms of their size? They're, yeah, so they're, they're smaller. Smaller. Yeah, so have us, like I said, massive beast of a thing, 3,000 people. Adam and Eve all of a sudden felt really small because... Um, they had like 500 people in the UK office. They had about another 100 in New York, which I was also supporting. Um, but it just felt like I was I was really interested in the opportunity to make a more concentrated impact because it was smaller. And I felt like it felt like because they kind of have the bones of like a small agency, but big enough to kind of push things forward. It felt like and their, their energy is very entrepreneurial, very scrappy, very much like ideas come from everybody that's their that was their tone of culture that they'd communicated to me and I was like I'd love to partner with that to see what we can achieve and do and so it was a huge shift huge change but also coming from a role that was um looking at integrated agencies and like I said media into a really pure creative agency 
and understanding again the craft of what they do and the, and the, and for me it just felt like such a right opportunity because the DNI work was going to be informing the storytelling and the output and that for me was the beginning of really partnering with clients and the way that the work was done and I think that for me has been the biggest pivotal moment in my career shift that's still present today in terms of how I'm in the role I'm in now because really being able to take the work out of a sole people role internal to being completely about the work um, the um, the client the craft and I felt for me it started to feel like I was back in my heartland of what I'd studied and what I understood and what I knew so you were saying you were Adam and Eve's first head of yes uh, DE&I do you think that all agencies uh, regardless of their size, should be investing in a, a head of DEI, or do you think that is something that could be worked um, on by somebody who's also working on people, HR, in those areas, or do you think it really needs to be a standalone person, or um, can it be outsourced? I'd, I'd... I think now I'd say I don't think you have to have a head of DEI in the business if you haven't, if the business hasn't determined what change they want to make and what they think the role is for and how they're going to partner with the role because sometimes people think the action of hiring a head of DNI is action in terms of we've hired a head of DNI we've we've done our bit no and that's for me where you leave people in isolation you leave people with no resource no support that doesn't work i think it's about going if you bring someone into your business it should be it should be part of your business strategy to go how are we going to bring this person in to add value and add expertise to our management team that is responsible for driving our business forward and how does dni play a part of that overarching holistic um, strategy not a separate siloed one and i think that so much of the work exists in the silo exists in the and even on the people side of things, I think there's a part of the work is people focused. But I actually think so much more of the work is in is in the craft, as I said, of what we do. Because I think that over time, I think some of the mistakes that industry's made is that I think we've got too outside of our bound by what by where we can actually affect change and by what we're doing. And I think there's been a bit of a shift by the role agencies particularly should play, I guess, in moving culture forward or moving things forward that I think are outside of our expertise, outside of what we do. Like, ultimately, for me, it has to make sense to what is the output, what do we do as a business? If we're there to sell ads, that's not going to change because DNI exists. It's going to have to be... Because when it comes to it, what I've found is that if it doesn't attach itself to the, the business case, and I know people don't love the people, people case, business case, but if it doesn't attach itself in some way co- to the commercial output, it gets dropped. Resource gets pulled immediately. It's the first thing that goes, oh, we haven't got any resource, DNI needs to go. And that tells me that you haven't built this in and you don't yeah. believe in how the impact this has on your business. Whereas the most success and the, and the agencies that I wanted to that I wanted to be a part of were ones that really understood the role exists as part of the business development of the of the agency, as part of the management team that has that has decision making and autonomy, but also is part of a team, is part of it's like the work isn't mine. And it's also removing it from having this thing of DNI has to be the vision of the individual head of DNI. No, the vision should be the business's vision. Like my my personal passion isn't shouldn't inform the vision of a business. Yeah. It's not my business, right? So I think that's where I think the question mark of do you need a head of DNI is based on what is the work you've done to determine the role that it's going to play within your business. So I think that we hear quite often that or there's figures to support the fact that having a more diverse business it it really shows in the figures those yeah. businesses are doing better. Mm-hmm. Do you think that having somebody who is looking at things from a DNI's perspective though also helps because when there maybe is something that could be considered slightly problematic, you're not just going to the one 
Asian person, the one black person within the business to ask them, is this okay? And so it's not on the shoulders of perhaps that one person or the one creative that's working on that specific project. Yes, um, I think yes and no, because I think that even if you're in the role of DE&I, I think the damage can or not the damage the limitation to the role can be that if you are the only person who can facilitate those kind of conversations for me the work is not being done to translate the role that everybody has to play in pushing the culture forward right and so I think you might have a specialism and expertise about how to support and navigate that but they're they're tools that you should be I think that should be um, shared with those responsible for the business and those responsible for managing teams i.e this should be management training for anyone who manages people, you should have to be able to understand how you navigate challenging conversations and how you deal with different people who have different identities to you. Otherwise, why are you in people management? Why, and people management is a part of heads of department roles. That's all part of it. And I think some of it is about, I think if you lean too much on the head of DNI to hold all of that space, that's a huge amount of trauma, a huge amount of the energy um, that they're being held to. When there are like difficult conversations, mm-hmm. should it always come down to the, the head of DNI? Or is there, like, another structure, I guess, that could be better within an agency? Or how does the head of DNI need supporting to kind of make lasting change? So I, I absolutely think the head of DNI has a huge role to play in how they facilitate those conversations and create the right frameworks that are that are um, prioritising the safety of the individuals versus the safety of the majority in the mainstream. Because often uncomfortable conversations, as humans, we're fragile and we think I first. And so... Um, that's one of the things I think the role of a head of DNI is to really facilitate the right frameworks to be able to have those conversations that lead to an outcome that um, will will support both the individual in the workplace, but also equip the the team, like the management particularly, and people in positions of decision making and authority to be able to navigate, help support that person come through those because. It's not about creating an us and we, us and them, or like a divide. It's going how can we create ways of working that both of us have a good time at work some people get to work show up to work without even thought but just they walk in they stroll in whereas others walking with layers and layers and layers of complexity because of their identity and their experiences and and that intersectional moment where it's like all of those different parts of me are, are very present and very in kind of being assaulted at times and so I think the role of DNI person is to absolutely facilitate and give that nuance to the experience and the framework but it's still for me is the role of everybody and particularly those in management to understand and to own that process to go this needs to be a thing where I need to be able to hold, hold these difficult conversations too I'm, a, I'm responsible for that individual as a manager I'm responsible for how they progress and grow and I have to challenge and ask myself if I can't hold, hold a conversation about how something about their identity maybe pushing them back or my biases might be challenging them, then you're likely part of the problem. And part of this work is helping everybody confront the truth of where they have played a passive role at times in the progression of particularly um, marginalised, underrepresented people in the industry. And so we all have responsibility in that. And, and just because I might have a identity that is underrepresented, it doesn't mean that it's solely my role and responsibility to, to navigate that. Because, again... What you'll find is a lot of head of DNIs, like I said earlier, that oh, we've hired that person in, the job's done. Absolutely not. Hire that person in and set them up to win and set up the right support that you same way you would hire a CSO and create strategists and senior strategists and junior strategists to help keep that department growing and, and ensure that the infrastructure works. It's the same thing for me. And that's why I think it's not fair to to make it solely the role of the DN, head of DNI. So if there's one thing that all agencies should be doing, um, kind of what would it be that 
from your experience, obviously working at Havas and Adam and Eve, um, two very different agencies, very different sizes, mm-hmm. and your experience of you've done lots of talks, you've been around, you've met yeah. lots of other agencies. Kind yeah. of what should what should everyone be doing more of? I think everyone needs to really hold on and own the strategies that were written um, for the sake of progression, for the sake of representation, underrepresentation, for the sake of DEI and taking the culture forward. Whatever they they name it as label it as but I think it's it's sticking to it and um, knowing that change doesn't happen overnight so re re changing your strategy according to everybody who comes into that role doesn't make sense but you know put it like work to the strategy own it like hold on to it interrogate it measure it and I think and that again that is the role and responsibility of everybody in the same way that every year you have your balances checked in terms of your budget you get your annual budget you know what targets you need to hit I think it's the same thing with these strategies around people around D&I and I think that um, it should be something that everybody is held accountable for not just the head of D&I I think it's something that um, there should be more governance in the, at an industry level to, to, determine, to determine how those changes are being made I think there's roles of, that the industry can do by way of, by way of like governing bodies that can help hold more agencies accountable to that because I don't think it's going to happen otherwise because, again, the bottom line of an agency in the business is to make money. So I think... And that's why I think building in some financial compensation within that too. But I just think... I just don't think... I don't, don't think it's that hard. I think what happens is too many people check out. And again, the moment you check out, I'm like, your privilege is showing up because the fact that you can opt out tells you your privilege means that you can still survive and thrive in this industry without having to consider this work. But if you... All, the, all of the narratives I heard at the time were this matters more than anything. And also the business case has been sought. We've seen it, that the diversity changes, having different types of people representing changes the work makes it better. So I think we don't need to keep justifying it anymore. I'm really over this, like, oh, but let's find more evidence of why this matters. Are you serious? And, even, and also, even if it didn't, even if the data didn't say it does, just do it, like... <laughs> It's like, how do you how do you want to evolve as a business if you... The world is changing, the world is shifting, narratives have changed, communities have changed, representation. Like, gone are the days where the community in the UK was... Um, we were, like, the even the black community, it's like, gone are the days when you talk about us as a minority. We're global majority. Like, we, we, we generate huge amounts of spending power and income and things like that. So some of it's about how we also own our power, but it's, 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 it, it's, it doesn't make business sense to ignore these audiences and these communities. Yeah. And ignore well, us. The clients also well. don't want to. So it's like, how are you as a business? You're ignoring it, but your clients are actively seeking it. Right, and I think, and I think that puts us puts agencies in a disposition by way of being and adding value to their clients. Because if the client has to push you to get there, it's the wrong way around. And actually, that's where you you lose your power to your client because actually they're like, mm, we brought this to you, you didn't bring it to us. A creative agency. The word you can't be creative if you're not diverse for one. I don't believe you can. You, no one gets to own creativity, particularly one white demographic. You cannot tell me that you own creativity and you don't. But and the problematic thing at the moment is there's a lot of co-opting, a lot of like paying your way into culture and stuff like that, and doing it in a way that's um, commodifying culture in a way that doesn't serve the audiences and, and the communities that are leading and it should be. So I think what agencies can do is, for every word that was written, for every intention, narrative, a pledge that was made whether it be in 2018, 2019, 2020, assess yourselves against it. Hold yourselves accountable and build it into your business plan so that it's not something that's owned by a head of DNI. that once they leave, the strategy leaves with them, that it's not owned by an individual who this is their passion project and once their passion diffuses, they leave or once they get exhausted, it goes. It, it cannot, it won't thrive. And I think that, and that's just business sense. That's not even like, that's how everything works. And so... 
for me it's key that they build that into the way that they work as opposed to this isolated siloed initiative so you've been a speaker at many events so ideas fest advertising association and kind of how is it for you walking into those spaces and and having those conversations um i think it's interesting because often what happens is you're preaching to the converted in terms of most people in those rooms know the information so you're not necessarily informing any further it's a lot of it's like we're all we all agree and the problematic thing is that the people absent from those conversations are the ones that need to hear it and so you know I haven't done a speaking event in a while actually because you know that was part of my frustration is that everyone will say this is we it's the same people I'm seeing in the crowds it's the same people I'm talking to we kind of we almost laugh at times to be like hey oh you're going to be at that next speaking event and it and it's like it's it became too insular and I think the conversation becomes too insular and that for me reflects that that the industry isn't adopting this as a way of being and as a practice as a culture as a as a as a as a imperative it's still a a siloed moment for when it's october we're going to call in the you know i still see people saying i'm so busy in october and i'm like you should be busy all through the the year because the conversation is relevant and nuanced and needed throughout the year but you know we've made gains and i don't want to be it's not all negative but um, yeah, I think sometimes those com- those um, panels and, and and conversations can be frustrating when you're preaching the converted. But every now and then you stumble upon an absolutely incredible moment. So I was actually lucky enough to attend. I wasn't speaking, but attend a panel just yesterday, um, hosted by leaders, and it was all about um, you know DNI within sport and the kind of the changes you need to make. And I think what was incredible was the fact that in the room you had you had not you had clients. You had leaders and decision makers. You had people, athletes. You had the whole ecosystem of, I guess, people within the conversation present, which makes it a lot easier because now when you go back into work or into your agency, it's not a secondary conversation. You're not having to retell it and find a moment when they're when they're when they're not um, when they're when they're free or when your CEO is free. I think being present because when we're in the moment, we feel it. Excuse me, and we ideate as we go and we say this is what we should be doing. And I think that's really hard to, to kind of replicate outside of those moments. So I think how do we, those panels and talks for me become hugely valuable to and bring in everyone into those spaces, particularly CEOs, particularly people with um, decision-making, because it's in those moments that the ideation and the and the strength of the message are really felt, as opposed to then having to send your DNI person back into the agency to translate and to, oh, can you do a talk on it that no one's going to attend? <laughs> I'm yeah. like, no, don't do that. So I was going to ask how have conversations around race changed since the start of your career, but I think we can both agree that the conversations have changed. But yeah. do you think that the rate of change or the pace has been fast enough or we're, we're where we should be at this point? Or, we, like, is the rate of change, like, good enough? Do you know, I think the challenge I have is that it's like we can't, we don't seem to have the time, permission at times, and the space to just have isolated conversations about race. I think the, I think the moment we do, it quickly becomes, that, oh, no, but that's not the only issue. There's other things that are important. And I think it's the idea that, you know, things can coexist, like race and racism and the, and, and the work around anti-racism, all those things, and the fact that we're not maybe as far ahead as we should be, that can be a truth as much as it's important that we receive representation for all kind of minoritized underrepresented groups. And I just find that it's still, we're still viewing it in this siloed, 
we can't talk about race when we talk about queerness. We can't talk about queerness when we talk about disability. We can't talk about disability when we talk about parenting. We can't, like, it's like, but yeah, yeah. We, we talk about these these things of intersectionality as, 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 as theories, but we still really isolate the conversation. And I just think that, and often for me, when you do do that, race does become the bottom of the agenda because it's the most difficult conversation. But also, let's face facts, a lot of the people who, um, there's not a lot of representation, particularly at a senior level, um, that are black in this industry still. Like, you know, I still don't see it. And that doesn't mean they don't exist, and that doesn't mean they're talent. But I'm talking about, when I say I don't see it, I don't mean that they're not here. I mean the profile. The work of profiling us in terms of people being aware of who we are. Our work and, and the impact we've had in terms of our creative, and not just in a DNI space. So I'm not talking about DNI leads here. I'm talking about talent, black talent in the industry. They're not being profiled. I'm not seeing them in all these magazines in terms of let's talk with this person outside of October. You know, there was um, the 20, was it the 2018 issue, Adlan has BAME, has BAME talent. Probably might have turned BAME, but it was at the time that campaign did. It was the first time I'd seen in print all of this kind of, this, this um, the, you know, the talent being presented as a, we're here. But I'm like, that was 2018. We need a I'm year, like, year update. Right. <laughs> and also, but also, where, where are all those people now? Because not all of, and because what was interesting, very few of them, if any of them, were entry level at all. Yeah. And so I'm like, but it take it took for a very intentional um, con- um focus for that for that issue to be to be made, which is fine. I'm not saying that and I think there's moments for like the first time you do something. But I'm like it's twenty twenty three. How are we evolving? Where are those talent? How are we still not profiling them outside of October? You know, and I think that um so I think that the conversation is still to be had and it's still one we should be having and we shouldn't I still f- think that we're having to apologise a little bit too much for that in terms of, oh, are we still on the race thing? Well, yeah, <laughs> we are. Because Sadly, guess I can't check out. <laughs> right, first of all, can't check out. But also, that's if you want to use business case for a second, the statistics tell us a story yeah. of things haven't changed. So I guess one way that change can come around is from the outside. Mm-hmm. And you've been an, an advisory board member for some black SMEs. Mm-hmm. Like, why was that an important, like, avenue for you to go down and something for you to, to pursue? Similar to kind of how I, like I said, got into Havas in the first place and working in the social sector, I thought it was really important to almost like play a conduit role of being able to understand the needs and demands of the agency at any one time, what the clients were asking for, and be able to be a conduit to, it, to, um, to communicate those opportunities and to help the businesses shape themselves in a way that they become... Um, um, built to support the infrastructure of the of, of the work as opposed to kind of existing in silo and, and, and then having to kind of pivot every single time they have a meeting. I'm like, well, no, these are the needs of the industry. These are the needs of the agency. These are the needs of the clients. And to build structures around and build, um, you know, and build, res- um, like, things that and basically respond to those needs as opposed to kind of just existing in silo and hoping that they kind of get the attention of the right brand or something like that. So it's understanding the actual the business need and how you can set yourself up to attach yourself to that as well as still maintain your authenticity about what you're here to do and, this, and your purpose but it was being clear about the needs and therefore almost like what's the demand for your services and being clear about where you you fit so now you've just started at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment mm-hmm. um how does it feel to be embarking on this new challenge I'm I'm really excited, like really excited, probably more so than I should be after um, working in youth for this long. But I think that for one, I'm an eternal optimist. But um, I also think that through all the experiences I've had, I was able to, I guess, navigate or negotiate the the role 
in a way that felt that it was very much about my skill set and, 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 you know, where I thought I could add value. But also for me, it was about hearing from them as an agency what it is they think they need. And, and, and we really crafted, I think, the experience together. So they were clear about the role that they wanted and who they wanted and the type of work they wanted to do. But I was able to infuse some of my the learnings I've had about where I think the role could evolve, um, which is why. And also I was really keen not to just go into like a head of D&I role and like an equivalent, because for me, I, f- I find the role limiting. I think limiting as an individual in terms of my own career trajectory, in terms of where do you go from here. And also when I think about what I want to do, I, I the, you know, <laughs> the nine-year-old me is still like, that's a cool. <laughs> I'm a bit of a neek, but yeah. I'm still I'm still like the craft of what we do, you know, the storytelling and the platforms we have and the way we get to work with, um, you know, brands and like help, helping them to navigate, you know, collaborations and culture and, and doing all these things to kind of, create this content and output that is so massively changing and rapidly changing since I first started in kind of when print ads were it and we used to have tutorials but I think the idea just that's I'm still as interested in the industry and the craft of what we do this role for me was an absolute happy marriage of like 50% of the kind of the DNI people engagement belonging understanding how our nuanced experiences and you know all of the things that are really key to creating a culture that allows everybody to thrive and and I don't believe in bringing your whole self to work I believe bring some self and hold some back right but how do we how do we exist in our authenticity more than anything I think that's where I'm really excited about this work because that's 50% of the role but then the other 50% of the role is really about the work in terms of working with clients informing our clients about how they can do better work and how they can kind of be um, more credible in the space they occupy as opposed to kind of buying their way into culture through collaboration solely thinking about how actually they can be intentional in shifting the things forward in an industry or in in or in like in music or in sport or in a way that is going to add value long term and, and you know and, and what I love is that they're a passions agency and so you know first and foremost they care about your passions they're all passionate people <laughs> which again really refreshing because I think you can get jaded in this industry but I've and I, I describe us as and they'll forgive me for this but I describe them as the best bunch of misfits it kind of feels like everybody in there is just quite genuine like I said hugely passionate about what they do but also get it that in terms of like you know there needs to be the balance of you know fun but um creativity but also you know how do we challenge and strategize and and unlike a more traditional agency, it's not siloed by department. It's kind of everybody has a role in the creative, strategic thinking, the client side of things, the account management. So it's it's really upskilling everybody too, which is really refreshing for me because I get to, again, hone and nurture skills, even though I've come in at kind of a more senior level. I think it's it's not about turning off the learning. Like, always be teachable, there's always more to learn. And I just think that's the environment that they've created at um, SNE. And it's the role that I've walked into through and doing their cultural impact work. So I'm hugely, hugely excited. I'm hugely optimistic for what I think we can do together. And I think the biggest win for me is that even when I started with them, everything was a we. It was we want to do this and we want to work with you to this and we and they and they sust- and they maintain that we. So at no point do I feel and like I said, I'm only seven weeks in and, and I don't mean that to say, of course, everything's a little bit raised at the beginning, but I just see them maintaining that we energy and, and it is way more of a team effort. It's it's mu- it's as much Jamie's responsibility as mine. It's as much, you know, Nick and the new team's um, responsibility as mine and that just feels like, really refreshing and I'm just excited to be part of a team because I've worked in, in silo for, for in all of my roles. Always been the first and I'm still the first. I'm the first head of Cultural Impact, but it feels yeah. real different. It feels real different. Straight away, have you been able to... 
I guess, feel closer to the strategy teams, the creative teams, and kind of be more more involved in those conversations from the start. Definitely, and and it feels like the role and my expertise are seen and valid and really understood. My identity almost becomes incidental to that. It's like it's not because I'm a black woman that they want me to hear my perspective. They're like because of your experience, <laughs> right? And because you you've worked in the industry, because you know, yeah, it, it, it's so much more about that. Um, and plus then me add, being able to add the value of my lived experience, but it's the learned as well. And I think that's what's been really cool is that, you know, oftentimes it's like we'll bring you in for a diversity brief or we'll bring you in for the DNI moment. But outside of that, nah, there's no, we don't see the value in what you have to say, whereas actually their approach is very much we see the value in, for one, they they really see, they don't see DNI as a separate piece of work. They, they've approached it very much as this is key and core to who we are. Um, and how we work so it doesn't feel like a separate conversation so I've from the beginning from jump I've been in all kind of conversations with brands and the briefs that we're actively working on I'm looking at all of it to be like how can we ramp it up do better whether and some of it's a strategic piece some of it's on the creative some of it's on the client relationship it really is kind of tapping in at all sides which I really love because I think again like I said I want to keep developing anyway and I think it's setting me up to a way that you know, I'm, a, I'm developing not just the DNI arm of what I do, but the craft of what I do. And that was really, really important for me. So I'm just really, yeah, I'm just really excited for what's to come. And I think for me, this feels like, it still feels like DNI work. Don't get me wrong. It still feels like, I think the word DNI gives me a bit of ick just because of <laughs> how it's been, <laughs> the yeah. texture of how it's been. But it's still hugely important work. And I just think for me, this feels like an, an evolved way of approaching the work, which is what we do, how we do it, why we do it. And DNI being completely embedded within that, as opposed to we do this and then DNI's over here, right? So it's like it feels way more um, connected, which is exciting. So just as a last question, I guess, like in a way, do you feel like there's still evolution that needs to happen, like in the world of DNI, like how it's viewed and and how it's embedded within businesses? Like there's still. 100%. 100%. I, th- I still think it feels like the first role to go in crisis. should be the last. <laughs> it should be the last. I still think it feels like a, 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 an, a, a... Like, if we find the resource, or if we find, like, no. And I think that's unfair, because, you know, we're losing some brilliant talent, because, actually, they can't see the longevity in this industry and in this work. And I think that's a shame, because we're, we're missing out on talent. And what's going to be left is either people not reinvesting in DNI leads um, which is a shame or what's happened is it's been handed over to people that are changing I think and shifting tone of what DNI stands for and shifting it a little bit more into the lane that they maybe feel comfortable in and I think that's where again where I'm like race sometimes and the conversation around anti-racism and all that stuff gets shifted because that's the difficult bit right let's go to the other areas that feel more accessible to the mainstream um, and so well, I say mainstream to white to whiteness if I'm being really completely transparent I think there's still the role that um you know the system of whiteness exists within our industry because you know our boards the leaders are still huge the industry majority right, the industry yeah. majority so when I say majority in mainstream I mean in that context not yeah. majority as I said not we the are world. It. no <laughs> not the world right um but um and so I think that yeah I think we I think so like I said even though earlier when I was saying should we invest in DNI heads and does every department and agency need to have one not necessarily but I do think that when you do it's like that needs to be absolutely imperative to be built into who you are, how you are, and how you do it. Um, otherwise, it's, just, it's a disservice to the individual, and they are set. You're setting them up to fail, which is unfair, because you lose talent. Often, those roles are held by people from marginalised backgrounds, and so that's not going to serve your 
your numbers. It's not going to serve the industry. It's not going to serve the role that representation should play. But also, the talent that we're losing out on. There's these people are brilliant. Like we're all dope. Like you know, it's like so. It's just a There's shame. People that leave because they don't feel supported. Right. It's they, like they don't get the chance to grow in their role. Or right. It's yeah. like I can't. How can I be in a head of DNI role and I haven't progressed in the five years that I've been doing the work? That makes no sense. It's like. And also, those people are often the ones who are leading the charge and change for others, but there's no one doing it for them. And I think that's why I think the role of like CEOs and leaders, it's like you have to advocate for yeah. those people, you have to partner with them, you have to, yeah, you look after us, man. Sure. <laughs> just think, it's just, I don't, and I don't think it's a lot to ask because I think it's, it's a very standard way of working and building teams and no, and lead. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's the role of leaders and leadership. Like I always think, the best type of leader is defined by their team and who and who they are around them. Like that is that is a demonstration of good leadership. So, if your if your teams just are just a reflection of you, I'd question your leadership. I'd question what is it that you, what are you fearful about about bringing people who have different perspectives? Like, you know, I heard someone say yesterday in terms of like, I want to hire people smarter than me. I want people that know more than me, and I'm like at the top of my game. Absolutely. Because otherwise, how do we grow? How do we keep going forward? And I think that part of that's because our industry is built on a lot of ego and built on a lot of fragility. And I think the work to be done is individuals, is still self-work to be like, how can I shift out of the fragility and recognise the opportunity that representation, d and all of that stuff adds, brings and adds value. Let's change the narrative to this deficit language and this, oh, it's, it's hard and it's this too. Like, this is huge opportunity. I'm excited about this. Oh, I can't wait to see who I get to work with. Oh my God, this talent, never seen them before. Never seen this person. Never thought of it that way. Like, let's be excited about this because that's what for me is getting, was hard is that it's the toll of the weight of the conversation feels heavy and it should be fueled by, like, our industry is birthed in curiosity. Yeah. Like, and the narratives, we've seen every agency with the narrative of, like, we look for curious, brilliant people that are like this. We look for entrepreneurs and all that kind of stuff. And inventors. I'm like, right, inventors. And I'm like, you know they're not all white, right? That, that's the thing, and that's the truth. It's like not everyone who fits that bill cannot be white. That doesn't make any sense. That's limiting. You're, you're limiting your imagination. And so for me, it's like, challenge yourself to reimagine what, what it could be. And then make space and let us go, because <laughs> guess what? We're good. We're all right. Right, we're all good. So the sponsorship and the advocacy and those things matter for maybe a moment, but also give us space, trust, let us fly the same way you do everybody else. I think that's all everybody wants, right? To do the work. Thank you. No worries. Thank you to everyone um, who's been listening. I'm Fiona Douglas and this is the Ad Race podcast and I've been joined today by Bacola Gary, Head of Cultural Impact at Embassy Saatchi Sport and Entertainment. Thank you so much for having me. This has been dope. Thank you. Thank you.